Hey, and welcome back to the latest installment of the Music History Project. Today, we are very excited to bring you an episode dedicated to the Parnelli Lifetime Achievement Award winner, Bob C. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Dale. And Dan Del Fiorentino. And Mike Mullins. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a program that is over 3,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of the other interviews that aren't featured, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. All right. We're so excited you guys are joining us today. We have an episode dedicated completely to Bob C., who is... The founder of the C Factory, of course, and the uh, winner of the, uh, as you mentioned earlier, the Parnelli Lifetime Achievement Award. Now, you know, the Parnellis are now located at NAM, which is one of the reasons we are so thrilled to document some of their history, but actually we've been documenting their history for about 20 years now, nearly since the very beginning of the NAM Oral History Program in 2000. So it's really kind of neat to have them officially in the fold of the NAM family. And their first show, at, uh, their first uh, official appearance, I guess you could say, at the NAM show was 2018, right? That's right. January yes. 2018. And you guys got to go. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I was, I don't know. I don't know what I was doing. I think I think you were having a baby. Yeah, oh, right. That's what it was. <laughs> You're a little preoccupied. <laughs> I probably would have been rather have been at the Parnellis. Um, experiences. What did you think? Opinions. Well, I reviews. love that group. I mean, that group to me always should have been part of the Nam family, and I think it just sort of took the right time and and space basically to make that happen. Uh, these are folks that are primarily our, our roadies and um, professional live sound folks in charge of uh, everything from hanging the lights and uh, the audio equipment to making sure the stage is secure. Uh, just a, a wonderful group of people, and it's been fantastic to um, document that history. So we have, uh, today's episode is an interview that Dan did with Bob C. of the C Factory, as he mentioned earlier. Is there any, I don't know, important details or factoids or anything like that you want to give us before well, we jump Well, it's really into exciting. It? I mean, to me, one of the, the key components of documenting the history of the music products industry is that we're sitting down and we're talking to people who were there, right? We weren't there necessarily. They were there. And we get to have sort of that vicarious experience. And to me, nothing illustrates that more, in my opinion, than Bob's experiences. I mean, this guy really was there at the very beginning of what we now refer to as live sound and the live sound industry. Um, he was there before Woodstock and even before the Fillmore uh, and documented that history and watching it grow and showing us and telling us in this interview the different uh, components, not only just in gear, but in the way uh, people approached it, uh, the way audience expected sound differently as a result of some of their efforts. So being on the cutting edge is one thing, but being there and having a role in that uh, experience and the transition into what we now refer to as live sound is really kind of cool. 
and he was a heck heck of a great guy. He was also uh, a a student of history and recorded his own set of interviews with people. So he was able to uh, tell us some history based on what he had learned from other people as well. So just a, a real great experience for me. Uh, that took place in 2010, I believe. So why don't we go ahead and jump into it? And I think Mike should tell us where we're going to start. Sure. We are going to start off Bob's interview, uh, hearing about music for him when he was a child, as well as going to NYU for tech and lighting and working at the Fillmore Theater. Well, I'm so grateful for your time, and I don't want to take too much of it, but I would love to start with um, just where your your passion for all this came from. Did you have a lot of music and and that sort of thing in your house when you were growing up? When I was growing up, both my parents were uh, musicians, and they uh, were both school teachers. And they taught in the New York City school system. And they taught, uh, my mother taught music, and uh, my father taught music as well as became a guidance counselor and then became dean of boys at uh, the high school he went to. And my mother used to teach, I think it was fifth grade in in Brooklyn, but also taught their uh, string violins, violas, you know, all of the string instruments. And when I was growing up, my sister had to take lessons and she chose the flute. And because they had such a miserable time with her, they didn't force me to do any instrument, right? But uh, I grew up around Texco hour on Sundays. I wanted to go up. I couldn't go through the living room for two hours as my dad listened to Texaco and go to my bedroom. So you were either up or you were down. You know, and that was it. And uh, eventually I just got, you know, I'd sit on the stairs and listen to it myself and developed, a, you know, uh, a musical appreciation. Mm. Um, and I it was always around music all my life, you know. Um, I think my dad would have become a professional musician if it wasn't the mid 30s and uh, he was happy to have a job being a school teacher. Mm. So, um, you know, I went I went to uh, high school and it was ended up in the. Uh, play production group and became a tech. I've been involved with musical stuff since I was 12 years old. And my parents started a musical society up at where we went for summers in Watkins Glen. And they called it the P. Georgia Music Society. And I used to do like, I was saying, and I also like did a little lighting for them and, you know, a little, make sure the microphones worked and things like that. But uh, out of that, um, from there, when I was in high school, even in junior high school and elementary school, I you know, was always diddling with record players. And I mean, we're talking AM radios back in those days, you know, and put speakers all around my room and have switches I could turn them on, turn them off, things like, you know. So from there, I ended up going to NYU School of the Arts Theater Program, which was right next door to the Fillmore East before it opened. And it was a beginning program at NYU. They're fill- and they're, they're, it was actually the I'm trying to, School of the Arts which they had film, television, but I was there for theater major to do tech, tech and lighting, you know? And um, we were, I guess I was, I guess it was a year and a half. I was, yeah, I'd been in school about a year and a half. And all of a sudden, the Fillmore East became alive next door. The theater became alive. And we all were wondering, what's going on? So we all would wander in and see what was going on. Because before that, they had been doing shows down the street at the, uh, let's see, I can't remember the name of it. Was it the Anderson Theater? I think it was the Anderson Theater down on 2nd Avenue. And they got thrown out of there, and somehow they ended up at 
the theater right next door to the Fillmore, which was on Sixth Street, which was what became the Fillmore. Which um, there was a Lowe's, it was a Lowe's. Um, oh gosh, it was a Lowe's movie theater, and they had like a twenty-eight hundred seating capacity. I guess it was a big, you know, big screen of the, you know, in the fifties, sixties, you know, the big screen stuff. So um, it had been closed and for a few years, and somehow a group of people, I'm not sure who the initial people were, but Josh would know all of that, Josh White, you know, from the light shop. And um, so, you know, we heard all this noise next door, and we all kind of wandered in, and, the, and it became a place for all of us to work and make extra money while we were going to school. And, you know, it was like, uh, you know, the, it was just a whole nother world. We had the opportunity there to do things at the Fillmore with like working on a real stage house. Well, next door at the School of the Arts, where I went, there wasn't a real stage house, you know, proscenium house per se. We had a module stage that Jules Fisher had designed that the first time we did a major production there, we ended up lifting it up and putting it against the wall because it weighed uh, 20 tons or whatever it was, right? Because the first designer, the first design was a basic stage, thrust stage, with a, with a proscenium around it. And the school didn't have that, so we created it. So that was the first year, I guess. And then the next year, when I, the Fillmore was opening up, we all kind of like gravitated over there because we had never really worked. None of us really worked in a big theater like that. And Well, I don't know. We all got hooked on the music and got, you know, it was the music of the day. We were listening to, you know, uh, anti-war songs. We'd be listening to rock and roll, you know, with uh, at three o'clock in the morning at NYU, you know, when we were doing shows there. So this was like, wow, we're having all this next door. And we just all got sucked in. Um, and it became, a, you know, a, a new livelihood for all of us. Or I think the people that I went to school with, all the three or four people who were the, the you know, I don't know what you call it. it wasn't, they weren't the cream of the crop, but they were the cream of the crop in the sense that they did strange things and liked to do different things and you know the, the challenge of it right of uh, dealing with the rock and roll because the rock and roll business didn't know the things that we knew in the theater business and we didn't know some of the things that they knew in the rock and roll business you know because they had dealt with sound I mean it's just a lot of different things right so it I just got sucked into it because of the Fillmore and Bill Graham gave us our head and we were able to do things that we weren't able to do next door at NYU um, and uh, it was a very exciting time. It was, you know, 1967, 68, you know, um, all the things going on in, in our country and the changes of, you know, all, the, all of the things from the Democratic Convention in Chicago to, you know, the the uh, Martin Luther King down and watching the you know I mean just a lot of things were going on, so the Fillmore became a home I think to all uh, a bunch of us um, because it was there and Bill was very accepting to what we you know wanted to do and we built our own sound system and we put in a lighting system and it was just you know we kind of like uh, were given. We didn't have to work our way up a ladder because there was no ladder to climb. We were the ladder, the beginning of the ladder, right? And in those days, no one brought production with them, you know? If you came to the Fillmore, we had like, I guess, 60, 70, 80 lights hanging. This is way before the world of moving lights. 
And we had built, Bill had given us money to build our own sound system. So we had our own sound system and as part of the contracts, I guess, with the artists, they had to use our sound equipment. I think a couple times we ended up having to take our sound gear out because the band wanted to use their stuff and for whatever reason they were traveling with it. So not uh, having had the privilege of traveling to New York City, I know it's on my bucket list, I gotta get off there. Um, I had never really heard of the Fillmore, but based on Bob's interview with the pre-production of all this, I take it it is a very iconic location, unfortunately not in uh, uh, service anymore, I guess you would say. Uh, so background? Well, the history of it is fantastic. I mean, they uh, this is an auditorium, basically, that started with an idea that Bill Graham came up with. Bill Graham was a promoter of concerts and creator of a lot of great um, concert venues all over the world. Um, in particular, two. One called the Fillmore Auditorium in San Francisco, um, which he started, I believe, in 1965. It lasted a few years and became very iconic because mostly of the people that he had performed there. Everybody from Jimi Hendrix and um, the Grateful Dead to The Doors, for example. And it was named for that part of San Francisco called the Fillmore District and became very iconic. And, of course, Bill became very iconic at the same time, uh, Mr. Graham, because of his... um, great influence that he had on all these various bands and artists who became close personal friends of his. I think mostly because it came from a very um, acceptable place. He wasn't there actually trying to make money. All of his concerts at the very beginning certainly were about uh, the benefits, and he was looking always for causes. Um, a, A great part of his character was how he was always trying to find somebody he could help And as a result, he would put a concert on, ask some of his friends to perform, and then donate that money, oftentimes not making money himself. And not to say he was a completely selfish person, but he certainly had that streak that went through all throughout his career. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but I think what's really uh, important here is that that expanded into Fillmore East, which started in 1968 and also was the perfect venue for a large array of artists from Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, uh, just about everybody performed uh, in the San Francisco and in the New York auditoriums named uh, Fillmore. So what's I what's exciting about that and um, going back to Bob C is that here's a guy who was there and watched all this grow and develop. So I think we're going to hear a little bit more about that coming up. Is that right? Yeah, we're going to have Bob telling us about what touring was like back in the 60s. Sounds like kind of the evolution of how the Fillmore in New York was um, kind of a catalyst for change in terms of setting the industry standard for what what the whole experience should be like, as well as you're going to hear him reflect on Bill Graham. But in those days, there wasn't traveling equipment. I mean, people didn't travel with semis and semis of equipment in those days if they traveled with a 16 or 24 foot box truck that was about all of it because the band gear would travel on that and maybe a little bit of lighting stuff or whatever but that it was very small you know it was even before the days of people taking tour buses and all that they would fly you know Uh, i mean i remember being on tours where 
I'd get up at 6 a.m. or 5 a.m. and get on a flight from one place to another, you know, at 7 in the morning, and I'd get to the city I had to go to, and the crew call would be at 10, so you get in a cab and go to the... I mean, it was just, it was nuts, you know, because you'd finish the show at 3 in the morning, and then your travel, the travel agencies would have booked you with something at 6 in the morning with a, you know, step over in Chicago to get to some... It was just... You know, and people today who who go on the road and travel don't realize the luxury they travel in compared to what when we started out at. Mm. You know, yeah. many times a lot of stuff in the, in the beginning, I drove the truck that had the lighting gear in it, so it wasn't like I had a truck driver. So you know, I remember crossing the flats of 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 Kansas and you know having been up for three or four days and and looking and seeing pink dinosaurs passing me on the side road. I mean, it was, you know, you were so, like, you know, wired, you know, and from, you know, you buy coffee cups, you know, they were like 24 ounces of coffee. It wasn't, you know, and, uh, you know, it was just, you know, drugs to help you stay awake weren't really, you know, maybe you took a white cross now and again because you get them at truck stops or whatever, you know, no dose or whatever. But, you know, it was just a whole crazy world. And um, it was very exciting. Every week we had a different band, so we, it was like presenting a whole new kind of genre of music. And Bill Graham always managed to um, have a, a, a cross-section of artists where he would take one type of music and, and put somebody else in with something else. And, I mean, it was really, he was a, he was, he was a brilliant, brilliant, um, director of uh, how to put, producer of how to put different artists together and the audiences really appreciate it. I mean, you'd have the strangest people together. An opening act would be Sha Na Na and they were never heard of at that point and it would be, you know, Against the Grateful Dead as the closing act, you know. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of, you know, some of the other, uh, it was, he was just brilliant at what, of his booking. Right. So I know we're going to be hearing a little bit more about Bill Graham, but um, just to kind of finish up what we were discussing earlier about his desire to create venues that would benefit a, uh, a cause. Um, it, I remember this very distinctly because when I was a kid, I was in San Francisco and I um, heard lots of stories about this guy, Bill Graham, and I actually got to meet him once um, for a radio program that I was doing. And it was just cool. I mean, he was such a neat guy, uh, very sort of nonchalant and didn't expect anybody to kind of get up out of their chair. But of course, everybody did because it was Bill Graham. And here's the icon that brought all of these amazing artists to um, audiences. And um, he didn't really kind of put on airs to, to me at all. And it was a neat experience. Sadly, it was just a couple of weeks later, he was killed in a helicopter crash. He went up to a concert where Huey Lewis and the News were performing. He went backstage and he tried to get Mr. Lewis to sign on to do a benefit concert for those who had lost their homes in a wildfire that hit a very large part of Oakland in the San Francisco Bay Area. And Mr. Lewis agreed to do it. And so uh, Bill Graham got back on a helicopter to go back to the Bay Area um, when it uh, hit some power lines. And I remember um, hearing the news and just I could not I could not get over it. I mean, I was still a teenager. So, of course, that whole thing about, wow, life is so 
uh, unpredictable. I just met this guy and uh, here it is, it's all over. But then to see sort of the aftermath of all of that and to hear people coming out in huge numbers to sort of say how important he was to music. And I was really struck by that. And I think really, honestly, that had something to do with me wanting to continue to document the music history because it is so important. And boy, it sure would have been great to have interviewed him, but I didn't have that chance. Uh, but I had the chance to interview others who knew him. So when meeting and interviewing Bob C., I was sure to ask about Bill Graham so that we could have part of that puzzle piece put into this collection and to make sure that his contributions to music uh, would not be uh, overlooked. And that's exactly how I feel about the Bob C. interview. You know, we lost Bob uh, in 2015, and there's so much that has been happening with the Parnellis and the inclusion into the NAMM show and all that that I really wish Bob could have been around to see because I know that he would have been excited about that. But still, we have his story, and I, I'm very honored that we get to share that with you today. So let's continue with that wonderful perspective that he had about the growth and development of live sound. Where are we off to next? Next up, we're going to hear Bob talking about um, different gimmicks that shows would ask for, as well as um, working around and in uh, different venues, concerts in the parks when he was a student and a young adult. And then he was going to talk about uh, Woodstock a little bit and the growth of outdoor concerts. Just that little outdoor festival. Just that, just, that just, little, just a little just that little history. That little couple concert. people went to. <laughs> different artists, we did different gags for, like... Uh, the crazy world of Arthur Brown. He wanted to come in on a wire and fly onto the stage, but uh, we couldn't do that. So we they built a Sudan chair, I think it was, and they carried him on stage. You know, um, and they had the guys, four big security guards, you know, uh, stripped down to their waists, you know, greased down, oiled down, with you know, looking like they were salt, you know, sultan slaves and stuff. Uh, and you know, we did uh, for Halloween, I think. Uh, uh, I think it was Frank Zappa we had the show I think it's Halloween and we had um, a guy who used to be Zachary who was a big uh, radio guy who uh, would talk like you know Frankenstein he was like he had a very you know voice and this is the one Zachary you know and it just was a very you know and we, I think I built a coffin for him to carry him on stage <laughs> tip the coffin up and then he would walk out of the coffin and then sit back in the coffin and we'd carry him off and he introduced the band or whatever it was. You know, um, and for The Who, we built a rake stage and had a giant curved screen behind him as a light show. And a lot of the ideas came up from whether it be Bill or Kip Cohen or Josh White from the light show or, or when Chip was there, he had ideas, Chipmunk the voice of Woodstock, as he's known as, um, and, and John Marsh. There are different people, different visual, kind of, you run them past Bill and, you know, he said, oh, that's a great idea, you know, let's do that, or let's do this, or that. So it was always uh, something going on, you know? I mean, I used to um, go to school and uh, I had like 20 hours of classes and I'd go next door and work for 40 hours, you know, at a buck and a half or two bucks an hour, you know? Uh, building the theater when we first started. Um, and, you know, uh, a lot of us, after we left school, that's where we ended up. 
um, doing shows. And, and every year, and then we did a thing in concerts in the park where the parks department uh, set up one of their winger stages and they would do Jefferson Airplane and, and Silver Cup and, uh, let's see, Jefferson Airplane, um, Grateful Dead or uh, some other of the bands from uh, San Francisco. And then we finished the show at two in the morning because we had double shows back to back, you know, on Friday night. And then we go Saturday night, Saturday, or we do Sun. Actually, it was two nights, Friday and, Friday and Saturday, two shows a night. And then on Sunday, we would do a free concert in the park. Right. So we'd all by the time Sunday evening rolled around, we were all pretty, pretty, pretty wasted, you know, being exhausted and stuff. And, you know, we did things like that. And it was just, you know, it was, all, it was, you know, then Woodstock happened. And that was a whole nother, uh, you know, thing that all of a sudden, you know, people were, we went from being small theaters around the country and then became, people would go to the Madison Square Garden to the arenas. So it grew to that. And then it grew to the big outdoor after Woodstock. It was like, you know, they have all these big outdoor concerts and stuff. And, you know, everybody was trying to look for their Woodstock. They was trying to have, you know, recapture what happened in Woodstock. Well, a Woodstock happens once in a lifetime, in my opinion, just like everything else happens once in a lifetime. You know, and everybody tries to copy off of it. So that was Bob C. talking a lot about just kind of the evolution of outdoor concerts and venues. And uh, I think it's perfect timing because by the time this podcast is released, we'll have just recently celebrated the 50th anniversary of Woodstock. Yay. Yep. I right. was just checking okay. your math. Ooh, yep. You looked at me like, I was like, what? Well, you're crazy. Like, oh, God. Well, I was just trying to think what year it was. And I was like, oh, yeah. Okay. That makes sense. <laughs> so uh, what better way to tie all that, bring it all, you know, full circle and remind us that life is cyclical than hearing Bobsy reflect on that. Um, and I got to see that Mike's dad got to go. Yeah. This weekend. At the time of this recording. Um, yeah. My parents are in Woodstock. Well, they were in Woodstock yesterday <laughs> yeah that's, that's cool. cool did you have you talked to your dad did he say what it was like 50 years later yeah well i mean he sent pictures and stuff i haven't gotten the full download uh, download yet. of it yet but i saw the pictures and it, it's cool i mean all of like the historical stuff and there's a big museum there with, yeah and the markers and mm-hmm. historical markers that's really cool yeah so next we're going to kind of transition from Bob C. talking about Woodstock and outdoor festivals to going back to the Fillmore and kind of the end of its life there in New York City. So here's Bob C. talking about really not being able to duplicate the magic that was the Fillmore and uh, its closing. People try to copy off what we had at the Fillmore and they still are today trying to copy it. They'll never get that because that was a, that was something that was... A, uh, very rudimentary in the sense of the people were were what made it what it was. You know, mm-hmm. it, they're trying today to like you know get the name Fillmore and do this, and, and they think it's going to be, but that's they're not going to have it because there's too much clouding all of what made it great in those days. You can't repeat that. It's history. That's something you're never going to remake history in that sense. You got to live by it and remember what happened, but and try to make it better, but you know, you can't, you just gotta remember what it was about and not try to relive it, you know? Um, So it was a very, you know, it was a very interesting time in my life. I mean, in my life has been very interesting ever since I got involved in it. I can't think of a time my life wasn't interesting, you know? For whatever, whether it be good, bad, or indifferent, it was always something new and different going on, you know? Um, And after the Fillmore closed, 
I ended up, um, I was living above the Fillmore in a loft, and I was like in charge of stripping the Fillmore down and taking the sound system out and sending it to uh, California to, uh, to Bill out there because he shut New York down but kept California operating. And we ended up basically stripping the theater of the lights and the sound and so on and sent it out by semi to uh, California. And that's where I met Patrick basically was at that point, you know, Stansfield. And um, I, at that point, you know, I was gonna, I went to California and I, you know, was thinking about maybe moving out there and they, they really, they weren't very, there was the East Coast and the West Coast and the Easties weren't friendly with the Westies and the West, you know, it's like, they didn't want us coming out there and, you know, a couple of people did move out there and end up working for, uh, for Fillmore West or for FM Productions. But um, I ended up getting a job um, working for the James Gang. And then after that, I came back. And I always, seemed, I always came back to New York, finding it. I always seemed that I'd always find work. And I ended up doing odd things in New York. And all of a sudden, I got a phone call from, from David Bowie. So that was Bob C. once again uh, from his 2010 NAM oral history interview. And I love the perspective that he has on the Fillmore. And there's so much been talked about and it's neat to hear somebody who was actually there fantastic stuff and of course bob was a recipient of the parnelli lifetime achievement award and i know that there were several other people over the years that we have interviewed that also uh had that distinction and i think there's actually a way on the website that you can get to a listing and watch some of those web clips is that right mike yeah so if you head over to nam.org and head to the library section of the website and click on advanced search you can search for all of our tags there and just search for the parnelli awards tag and you'll find everyone associated with the parnellis and the lifetime achievement award and i think if you are on bob's uh, bob c's web clip there's also a link to that tag at the bottom of this bio. Is that right? Correct, yeah. So there's two ways to get to it. So as we work our way through this interview with Bob C., um, we've just kind of talked about the Fillmore closing and ending that big chapter in Bob's life. You can really feel from him the tie he had to that building, that venue. I mean, it's like, I feel like when I was listening to it and watching the interview that it's almost like a, he sees the Fillmore almost like as a child, you know what Mm, I mean? And he's watched it grow up and, and now it's, it's no longer in his life. And so he's got to figure out what to do next, which is the perfect transition (laughs) to the next section. And we're going to be hearing about life after the Fillmore for Bob C, the work he was doing, um, who he's getting to tour with and be recruited by as well as starting his own business. And then I worked for Bowie for five or six tours and went, you know, around the world with him and came back and went to work with other bands, English bands, and basically started my own company, Sea Factor. And it, you know, it built, I built it a little on time, you know, a little at a time. Uh, we were in the beginning down on right, well, we used the Fillmore building for a little while and then we had uh, storefronts on three different blocks, 5th Street, 6th Street, and 7th Street. So when we had some of the gear in one building and another, and we worked on the street, assembling equipment, and the meter maid came along and said, you got, you're, you're consuming parking space, you have to pay for the parking So we ended up putting dimes in the parking meters to keep her happy, so she wouldn't issue a ticket to us. 
And, uh, you know, I, we built shows and eventually I had a couple of guys who worked with me at the Fillmore who'd go out and I'd design the show and they'd go out and run it. I'd go out for a couple of days and they'd run it and I'd come back and be looking for the next tour to do. And it just, you know, it evolved and we moved down from, that just got too nuts to try to do things like that. And we moved downtown to Thomas Street and I got a loft building down there where I had uh, the ground floor, the basement, and the fourth floor, I think it was, for uh, our gear. And then I got, ended up getting another part of the building. And again, it grew and I just it was just too crazy. We keep equipment in semis and part of the semis either right there in the street on Thomas Street. And when they want to give us tickets, the drivers would drive the semis around the block until they could, the guys would go around and leave us alone and they'd repart the thing. And it was just, you know, again, it was nuts. It was always a challenge. How are we going to do this? And I can't remember not working 18-hour days at least seven days a week, you know? And eventually, I just, this is ridiculous. I can't keep working out of Lower Manhattan. Because Lower Manhattan, below uh, Houston Street, where, which where we were, became very hip, very, you know, like trendy. It was going the way that uh, it had gone between Houston and Canal, right? And we were below Canal, actually. And so it, it became very, um, I don't know, uh, started to become very hip. The artists started to move in. And when, when, I, when we were there originally, it was, uh, oh, industrial. And it was like, you know, it was nothing. It was, it was, we didn't have a grocery store. We went to New Jersey to buy our groceries and brought them back, you know. And um, uh, I ended up... Um, my wife and I ended up having a child, and after that, she said, "I can't. We can't keep living here. We got to figure out what we're going to do." So, I ended up getting uh, rented a house out here in Queens, and she and then my son lived out here, and and I drive back and forth, and I said, "This is gonna. This is too nuts. I can't keep doing this." So eventually, I found this place in Long Island City, and I, you know, bit my nails and I signed signed on the dotted line. And I've been here ever since, you know, and, um, you know, turning tours out. And as the business evolved and changed, we had to change. So um, the touring business fell off for quite some time. Um, and we uh, got into other things. We did a lot of local events and eventually we got into film and television. And we started doing a lot of that, and eventually out here became the Hollywood of the East Coast. The Hollywood, you know, because Astoria Studios is right down the street here, Silver Cup and Steiner across the river in Brooklyn. And yeah, it became, and all the movie stars like to live in New York or nearby it, and they, you can't get the same scene that you can in New York, you know? Toronto doesn't do it. So when they want a New York street scene, they got to come to New York, and they do. And, you know, they, they, New York has made its uh, uh, tax its incentives to keep them here. And, you know, so this is where our business has developed. And we still do some touring, but not that much. It's not, uh, it, our, our direction changed over the years, you know. Uh, and it became... Uh, when the moving light came into existence, it basically pushed a lot of the other kinds of companies out of business 
and we didn't have uh, rear lights like Shoko did, and you know, so it, it's we just evolved to stay alive, you know, because otherwise we'd die and go away, and I wasn't I wasn't going to do that. So I've always been a survivor, so I'll keep surviving, <laughs> yeah. and that's where we are today. I mean, it's basically, it's amazing. I love reading about your the stuff that you do. You guys are very active in all kinds of stuff, and. One of the things I, I was sort of curious about is back to uh, the David Bowie days, doing uh-huh. that tour. Do you look back at that and, and and think that any of that stuff that you were doing, the lighting or any of that, was innovative at the time? Oh, yeah. We were doing... We, I, we tried to do... Um, I mean, Bowie always had crazy ideas about doing stuff. And, and um, they didn't have... The money and the budgets weren't the way they are today. Um, they didn't want to spend, you know, giant gobs of money because it became, it was, it, you know, it, a lot of the things in the infrastructure that exists now, the buses, the trucks, the companies, all the things that go on today, um, go on today because they developed out of the need. But back when I was doing Boeing, right, in the, in the uh, early 70s, there was a need, but there wasn't, no one stepped up to the plate. You know, a lot of the, like, uh, Shoko and myself and other companies where that were big enough got into their own trucking. Nowadays, you don't bother because you get a higher trucking company because there's seven or ten of them out there to do it. I mean, when I started and put together C Factor, there were maybe five other companies in the world that did what I did. All right? There really were very few that toured the world, I'm talking about. When we started, we, we had an operation in London. You know, for 20 some odd years, we had an operation in LA for about the same time, and it got to the point where I was running around, you know, becoming a jet setter with, you know, between going to Los Angeles and then, and then trying also keep New York running, because New York was the hub, um, and LA and 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 the UK were really satellites. You know, they did some business on their own, but the company we weren't big enough to be able to have major operations in both locations in all three locations so we end up shipping equipment i mean it's hard to imagine being at a point in your career where you get a call from david bowie and it's (laughs) like hey come work for me i mean can you say no to that i don't no you can't (laughs) (laughs) so what's really cool about bob is the story he tells about just starting his own company he figured out there was a area a need and he knew he had a a little area of expertise and so he just went for it and he was very sort of shy or sort of somewhat humble about some of the contributions that he made and I had to kind of drag some of it out of him but I really think that it was awesome that we documented that because so many people now uh, involved with the Parnellis and and other aspects of the live sound have sent emails regarding our interview with him saying how wonderful it was to have that perspective documented and um, so we're going to hear more of that perspective coming up. What is he going to cover next? Next up, Bob's going to be talking more about touring, uh, more specifically with uh, Neil Diamond and Rush, and just seeing the world while on tour and the great experiences that he had. The bands also want, I mean, like Rush, we did them for 20-some-odd years. They want the same show on each, you know. So we'd have certain stuff that we had in London that they, we could use, and then we ship the rest. And the same thing for Neil Diamond. Neil Diamond shipped everything, you know, everything. Um, 
uh, I remember um, we did a show in Atlantic City, drove up to to the airport here in JFK, loaded a 747 with 27 pallets. I mean, Patrick can tell this story, but 27 odd pallets of, uh, and it flew to London, and we ended up doing a show in London. That was the only way we'd get to gear there fast enough. We did a Roger Waters show, um, same thing. You know, we're, we ended up FedExing everything, literally FedExing everything to London. And you know, it's it's just uh, it's a it's 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 a crazy world. And you know, the things we used to do, because of the way the booking was done or whatever the reasons were, we always had to find a way around it all. You know, how to make it happen. And yeah, it was it was interesting from the standpoint of designing and doing things and making changes and oh, I don't know, just um, coming up with. Solutions. There was always a, a problem, or they needed to have a solution to something, and that was the fun part of it: solving problems. Had it, and the excitement of. It. I mean, how often do you get to hang out in the airport and load a 747, you know, or you know, end up flying on the Concorde, or you know, just doing things that, you know, you tell your kids, and they kind of look at you like, did you? And they can't imagine some things you did, you know. Um, and, and, you know, uh, working for Aerosmith for all the years we worked for them. I mean, we're, we worked with, I would say, 90% of all of the major artists that existed for all, the, all those years, you know, the 70s and the 80s. And, you know, it was just, uh, it was fun. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I sit here and I think back and I, I say to myself, Jesus, I've been doing this, I've been in this business now for almost 40 plus years. And it's like 40 years? I can't imagine. I can't imagine being here doing all the things I've done. I'm still here. <laughs> it's a thing I can't, I don't understand, you know, on some levels. But um, it's just been, it's been a fun ride. I mean, uh, you know, uh, they used to say, join the Navy and see the world. Well, I changed it to, uh, uh, go on the road with a rock band and see the world, you know? Because, you know, it, you become a family and everybody goes, you know, together and you go all over the world and you do, do what you have, you know, do what you have to do. And it's like, you know, the first time I went to Japan, it was like, you know, you know, we, we, we didn't take any gear over, we just went over ourselves and we hired all the gear over there because they didn't want to pay for the shipping. And actually, I think, the first time I went over there, we did ship some stuff over. But then all of a sudden, the Japanese figured out how to do it. And after the first two shows, all their little guys would figure out, you know, how to hang the whole show. And it would be up, and it would be what you want. And all you'd do is stand there and call it, and, you know, and they'd have a, an interpreter that would, you know, and, and then I had to learn how to say, you know, the different colors in Japanese or in Spanish, or whatever, you know, whatever language of the locals. And... Uh, then they'd be an interpreter to say, you know, or I'd say, follow Bowie, Bowie, you know, or someone's, you know, and I was like, that's, you know, but that was the fun of it, too, you know, and I got, I got off the road because I started to have a family and I just didn't want to travel, the amount of traveling, um, and I had seen almost everything I had wanted to see at that point. I'd been almost everywhere I wanted to be or go, and I figured, eh, when I retire, I'll go, and Finally, go to see all these places again, you know, and enjoy them. 
But I haven't retired yet, and I don't know if I'll ever retire. So who knows? You know, we go from there. So that was Bob talking about uh, life after the Fillmore, going on tour with different groups, and kind of that unique perspective of having all your equipment shipped from location to location as opposed to trucking it all yourself. Um, and now we're going to hear Bob talking about major innovations throughout his career and the changes he witnessed. Yeah. I was going to ask you about uh, what you um, think to be some of the major innovations during your career. I mean, you mentioned the moving lights. That must have been a huge one. Oh, yeah. The first time the Vera lights were seen um, out on a tour, everyone went, ah, and it was something new and different. And... A lot of companies tried to build their own Vera light or look alike, and a lot of people went through a lot of money trying to, and some of them were successful, and then it became uh, it, it got it got very political, you know. Uh, I'd say in the the sixties and the seventies were fun, the eighties and the nineties became a political mess or got very political as it is in you know the in the two thousands. I mean, and it was equipment, but then as the Chinese and as the uh, manufacturers um, became, you know, like someone, the interesting thing is way back in the beginning, we had to build everything. That's why I did with C-Factor. Because I couldn't go down the street, go to the truss store down the street and buy a truss. I had to build my own truss. I needed a dimmer rack. I couldn't go down the street and buy a dimmer rack. I had to buy dimmers and build a rack, right? And this is something that people don't understand. A lot of the stuff that we did in the beginning was there wasn't a catalog. You thumb through and say, gee, I have six of those and five of those. And then you go to another catalog and find motors or trussing or whatever. I mean, chain hoist motors were, were found but were used in total other applications. And you'd find equipment that was used in other applications that you could apply to our application, our needs, right? And I mean the park in. Yeah, it uh, originally started out as a headlight for a car. You know, um, I mean all kinds of innovations that occurred over the years, where someone would take a specific thing and maybe make it better. But you'd also a lot of the companies would make things where you only had this type of particular connector from multi-core or whatever it would be, and it would be your little niche. And people would use that as a selling point. And then if you wanted to bid on somebody, the designer or whoever was in charge, you'd say, well, we want everything with Litton connectors or with this or with that. And, you know, there would be their way of getting the work to where they want and still, quote, unquote, have, you know, uh, uh, people, more than one person bid on it. Um, and all, But also a lot of things I did because I had to. I mean... Um, we used to do bundles of cable for years and make up cables designed specifically for each tour. Then it got multi-core, and then um, we're still with multi-core as a solution. And moving lights with Verilite, and you couldn't buy moving lights, right? And Verilite was the big guy. There were a couple other people who got in designing uh, moving lights, um, but Verilite was the moving light. I mean, they, they were a huge company for, you know, for a long period of time. And if the, what would happen is you'd have to be friends with them or else you might get knocked off the tour or it might be an all-bear light tour. 
and all you provided was the trussing and the rigging and stuff. Then they became rigging companies. That, that's all they did. So I, I had to look and say, okay, again, how am I going to prevent being put out of business? So I had to find something else to use my skills in, you know, and find someplace else that needed what we could do, all right? And that's why I moved to the movie. It's also why we did a lot of local jobs, you know, and where they weren't going to hire a company from Dallas or from Toronto because they had somebody who could do it right here. So we were able to do it. But again, the, 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 big, the big changes happened from what we used was a stick of lights with some lights on it. And then we went to Genie Hoist, which had an air thing that pumped it up. And then we went to uh, lifts, some of lifts or vent lifts or whatever, to lift up a truss. And then we put the truss up in the air with motors, got rid of the ground support. Then we moved to uh, adding moving lights. So then some of the lights got thrown off. And then more and more moving lights got added. And then eventually it became all moving lights. And I said to Rusty uh, Boucher, who was uh, the president of Airlights, at one time, at one some show we were at, uh, I you know like uh, what was it, lighting some lighting show? I don't remember what it was. This was years and years ago. I said, eventually, within ten years, every light will twist and turn, color change color, zoom in, and there will be no need for static lights anymore. And he kind of looked at me and smiled. And said, yeah. You know, and you know, then other men, and then companies, other companies got into it, like Martin, and you know, um, there's a company, a couple other companies, an Italian company, and then then the Japanese got it, and then now the Chinese are into it, and they all take and copy everything that somebody else comes out with. So it's like the automobile business used to be. Once again, you are listening to the Nam interview with Bob C. Uh, recorded in 2010, and one of the innovations that he didn't talk about in great detail that uh, he gets a lot of credit for is the uh, simple procedure of packing the truck. You know, when uh, going from gig to gig, it really does make a big difference how you load and unload uh, the equipment and gear, and Bob was really a master at that, and so his legacy certainly continues with those who have studied the craft of loading and unloading uh, trucks, and it's really kind of neat to hear that just kind of a simple thing, it seems, is actually uh, takes a lot of effort and um a lot of studying so uh, kind of cool to recognize that element uh, not only of his career but of the many people who continue to do that now so moving on we're going to hear bob talk about a variety of topics such as lighting shows developing products um, him wanting to tour as opposed to manufacture and some innovation that was going on as well as the industry maturing and his opinions on lighting versus sound you go to a trade show a lighting and sound trade show for our business. Today, it's like going to a car show 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And there's so much glitz. And so you walk in and it's like, there's lighting, everything, moving this, da, 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 da. And it was just, it's just like going to, a, to an auto show now. You know, I mean, today's lighting and sound shows like um, LDI or whatever they may be, right? They're like going to an auto show 20 years ago. You know, I'm surprised they don't have girls in, you know, in, in, in swimsuits sitting on top of the truss and saying, you should buy Tom's truss versus so-and-so's truss or whatever. You know, I mean, it's the same thing. And again, you know, it's like, how many different ways can you do a truss? I mean, 
Yeah, and that's why I've tried to, over the years, keep the relationships with particular companies, you know, tight because I didn't want to move around and only get, get the cheapest or whatever. I mean, it's, you know, there's certain people who develop, like Thomas Trussing. And again, we used to build our own trussing for years and we built it for other people. And I said, I don't want to become a trust manufacturer. I, I mean, I, my thing was touring and I wanted to tour or do shows or whatever. And I didn't want to become a manufacturer. I was at various times for myself, you know, where we'd make cable, we'd build dimmer action. We'd buy somebody else's dimmer and package it by consoles. We've designed our consoles for a long time. Um, we designed our own moving light console. Because at one point there were no moving light consoles. So we designed a thing called a Taskmaster, which ended up where what we did was make a console that could control any moving light that was out. All we needed was the protocol. And because at that point there were, but there was no console. So you'd have this kind of moving light from this manufacturer and this kind of moving light from this manufacturer. But they each had their own consoles. So we designed a console. And we sold a few of them, but mainly it kept us in the loop for about 10 or 15 years where we had our own console, mm -hmm. right? And we could run anybody's lights. So if somebody said, oh, I want to use such and such, oh, I'm fine. We'd get rid of them in or buy them or whatever we wanted to do. And we could run them on our consoles. And then all of a sudden, other people picked up on the idea, and boom, you know, there were all kinds of consoles out there that would do anything, you know. And I didn't, I, again, I didn't feel like becoming a console manufacturer. So, you know, that's how things changed. I mean, there were definite, every few years, there was a definite major improvement or change in the industry, you know, from uh, getting dimmers and dimmer racks, uh, touring, multi core. Can, uh, moving lights, uh, more moving lights, and then more moving lights, you know. I, it's like, and then certain tours would want to have very specialized things designed for them. You know, the Stones was one of the people who always had a very special look because the design people wanted to have certain looks, or that's how they sold it to the Stones, and that's what the Stones sold to the public, you know. It was a whole show, you know. Not just a bunch of lights and some musicians standing there and playing guitars or running around stage. And that's the way it was with a lot of bands. And it depends the type of production that they surround themselves with, how much money they had, and how big an ego they had, and uh, how much money they were willing to throw at their ego to give them, you know, it was like Van Halen, uh, you know, at one point, you just say they had more lights out than anybody else. They had like 1,500 lights out. On a, on a tour. And then it became, okay, how many trucks and this and that. And you got production people involved and, you know, like Michael Ahern would, in the early days, figured out he ran it like a military situation with the Stones where he had the A team and the B team and, you know, they would jump each other and be, you know, two sets of group. I mean, it was just, it was nuts, all right, on some touring stuff. And, you know, and then you had grooves that moved in this so that the show could be I mean it was just you know one thing after another and you ended up having people who would break off and specialize in certain areas so nowadays if I was given a million dollars or two million dollars I can sit down and put together almost anything anybody wants for a tour and not have to build a thing, single thing for myself because you can buy it all because there's a guy who makes cable there's a guy who makes dimmers. There's a guy who makes moving lights. 
And there's 20 guys that makes movie lights. And then there's a guy that makes trust, or 10 people that make trust. So you can buy almost anything you want. And if you think this technology is better, you can buy it. You know, you don't need to, you know, exercise your brain to create it anymore. Because people have designed it. And then, you know, the bean counters got involved. The accountants. And everything had to be done. So then it got to the point where, okay, you know, you can't spend the money you used to spend, you know. So then it was, how do you, how do, you do what they want and make every show look a little different, but do it so that the bean counters don't get upset, you know, so that you can give the bean counters what they want, which is more money for the bands. So, you know, it just goes on and on and on. And I'm sure it'll continue to go on after, after I'm dead. So, you know, and it doesn't, it doesn't change. It's just that we've matured now as an industry, you know. I'm not sure if we have, but we supposedly like you. have. <laughs> you know, a lot of people out there would like to think we have, you know. Um, and I guess in a way we have, you know. Um, we've, we've had our problems in like any other industry, you know, but we're not like Toyota. We don't have problems with the brakes or the engines or whatever, you know. And it's interesting that now because of the big oil spill, um, uh, Letterman is making jokes about, boy, now Toyota doesn't have to worry. They can get out of the hot, hot seat. They put the BP in it instead. And they had a little skit about that the other night. It's very interesting. You know, so that's exactly what's going on. And it, that applies to our business as well. You know, sound. I mean, the sound systems, and we got involved in sound 25, 30 years ago, I guess, when a sound company said to the and got involved with lighting, and then all of a sudden said to the artist, oh, I'll do sound for 12.5 and give you lights for 2,500. Well, that's what we did with lights. Well, we had to get into sound, so we did the same thing. We said, okay, we'll do your lights, and we'll do your sound, and we'll do it for this amount of money. You know, and then the package deals happened. Oh, you want trucking? Okay, fine, we'll give the truck. And it was all for the bottom line. It all came down to, you know, your profit margins went down, but you did more. Okay, so it means that you made more money. No, it means you spent more money, you know, and you had to have profit on, you know, and it got pretty crazy, and it still is. So, you know, I don't know where it's going to all go. I, you know, it, it's, um, it's now there's a couple of very big people who do a lot of the big things and um, a lot of little regional companies. And, you know, I don't know if the big guys are going to survive. Because um, a lot of the artists don't want or, or aren't happy with what they're getting, you know. So who knows? You know, who knows what's going to happen. So we'll see. Well, I know you do lighting and sound. Do you prefer one over the other, other at this point? Um, no, I just prefer to get paid good for both of them. <laughs> and, or the amount that I should be paid for both of them which doesn't happen, you know, you're always giving something for, you know, something else. You, well, there's always a trade-off, you know, no matter what it is, because people figure, oh, well, I'm giving you all this business, you should make it so I make less money. I mean, so that they pay less, and in turn, I make less, so. But your exposure is greater, and, uh, you know, it's like, you know, you gotta have insurance, and, you know, it all. And when you work out in New York or Los Angeles, it's a major metropolitan areas. Things always cost more. You know, our mayor likes to hit us with taxes. I don't even know about, you know, and that's why 
like we're the only company, there used to be five companies or three companies in New York City area, right? I think we're the only ones now that are still here that do what we do. I mean, you know, and we can do anything. That's the thing. We do, we can do big shows at Central Park, or we can do little things in nightclubs. We can do anything. And that's, you know, that's our big across the board spectrum what we can do. So that was Bob kind of touching on a variety of subjects there and we're going to move into the conclusion of this interview with him and we're going to be hearing him talking about providing some examples of shows that had their hiccups, which I think is a good way to put it. Mm-hmm. Just some of the challenges along little the way. issues. Yeah, yeah a little brain <laughs> teaser for you. As well as we're going to hear him reflect on Bill Graham once again as we heard previously and his philosophy of trying to solve problems before they become a problem. One more thing I wanted to ask you about. Um, I mean, I can sit here and listen to you all day. This is just great to hear your career and, <laughs> and your thoughts. But I, I also know that uh, you're quite the thinker, you know, and, and when push comes to shove, if there's a, an incident and almost every show has one where something doesn't quite work, you found some amazing and unique ways of getting around. I wonder if you have any favorite anecdotes or stories about that. Oh, God. Um that's a hard one to answer because it, in the early days, there was always things to think around, right? Today, it's not so much. I mean, yeah, it's like you go in and somebody says, well, I want to hang this TV screen here in this beer garden or wherever, and it weighs, uh, you know, uh, two tons. Well, okay, you set up this, do that, and put this together, and you hang it, right? Um, but that's all built out of building blocks. I mean, what we have done, or I think what I have done, is I've helped the industry create a lot of building blocks. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of things that were copied that we designed that other people took and went on and made that part of their product line. You know, like box truss, like uh, folding truss. Um, Those are all things that we did that nobody else did way back in the early years. Multi-cable, you know. Yeah, there are companies that had multi-cable, but you know, we went to, we went to uh, Pile National, which Pile National Cable is the best. And you know, you drive over with a forklift; it doesn't break it, and you know things like that. And they were more expensive, and so people found cheaper solutions. And those manufacturers, because they got so much business, became a better connector. Um, wire, uh, certain wire became, you know. And then we also had groups of people who made industry standards that for years we. We met here, you know, the, the I think one, one, one week a year, like a Tuesday. I think that was one Tuesday, Tuesday night every month. I think first Tuesday every month for a year or two. We met here, and, you know, after seven and had discussions about how to change the electrical code or, oh, and we tried to, and, it's, and it's, all these things have grown out. Like ESTA has become, uh, a, you know, a group of industry people and everybody within the industry really basically joins, and it's our, our society now. We're joining together with the same people, Plaza, over in England, who do England. And, you know, so we what we're trying to do is prevent government regulation. We're also trying to prevent accidents. We've had accidents over the years, but you know, knock on wood, as an industry whole, we've had very few of them where people got killed. And that's an amazing thing for what we've done. You know, um, you know. I mean, think about the fact that I went to an Aerosmith show one day, one day at the Garden. I looked up it, and there was forty thousand pounds of equipment 
flying over Steven Tyler's head. And I just sat there and I said my prayer that nothing would ever happen. And my prayer was the fact that I always tried to do it the right way. Don't shortcut because all it's going to do is kick you in the ass. And somebody's going to get hurt. And I'd rather waste a dollar to making sure that doesn't happen than to try to save a dollar to make my pocket richer. You know, and that's the way I've always been. You know, and I've always tried, you know, never lie. Always tell the truth. There was there was a production, I won't name the name names, but that went across the country that ended up putting they they would say, Well, how much does the system weigh? And they lied by, you know, fifty thousand pounds. They almost pulled down roofs. And you know, and it's because you can't do that. You got to know what's going on. And it's got to be done the right way. And I think that's one of the things in the early days I strive for. And I still try to strive for it. And, you know, when people call me and ask me what I think, and I tell them. And they know I'm going to tell them what I, what I feel and what I think. Because I've never hidden my feelings about things. And if I think that someone's an ass, I tell them they're an ass. You know, or I think that, you know, that this idea is okay, but it's, or that it's stupid or whatever. You know, and you try to be honest about what and where you're going. Because if you're not, it's too difficult to keep track of what you've said. If it isn't in your heart and in your head, then you, and you say it the way you believe in it. Because that way it'll be the same thing five years later. And that was one of the things I liked about Bill Graham. I think that when Graham died, the heart of our industry got lost. All right? Because he made demands on production in his day that I, I don't think anybody ever made afterwards, all right, on shows that he, and he would even comment about shows that came in, and he thought that, you know, he goes, you know, he said, oh, it's just too much, or whatever. And it's, and, and he was really very straight shooting about that kind of stuff. Um, and you, you learn a lot from the people you work with and for. You know, and that's what I've tried to always do, is you take and get rid of what you don't want to or don't believe in, and you develop your own ideas off of others as well as your just your own thinking or what you see or what you believe. Or you ask questions or you see, and you always try to find the problem before the problem happens. I think that all of the problems that have been, that have arisen, I believe that people have always tried to come up with solutions beforehand. They recognize the fact that it might be a problem and try to solve it beforehand so it doesn't happen. I mean, I don't know if that's totally true, but that's kind of the way I try to live my professional life. So. Well said. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. You're welcome. This is great stuff. I can stay here welcome. all afternoon, but I know you've got other stuff to do, so thank yeah. you. Well, yeah. We'll do it another time if you like. <laughs> Part two. Part two. So that wraps our Bob C. interview. Does any, mostly Dan, does anyone, Dan, do you have any final <laughs> thoughts you want to interject about Bob of things you didn't get to mention earlier? Well, I just, uh, I think I did mention what an honor it was to uh, have some time with him. Uh, I learned a lot from him and I'm really very hopeful that uh, other people can learn from this interview because that's sort of the point of the collection and uh, certainly would be uh, an extra bonus for uh, the fact that uh, his legacy will continue 
And also a, a hats off to uh, to all those involved with the Parnelli Awards. It's awesome to have you part of the NAM family. And we are looking forward to interviewing more of their Lifetime Achievement winners. Yeah, and if you're ever at a NAM show and have the opportunity to attend the Parnelli Awards, um, I definitely recommend it. Last year was my first time going, and it's just cool to see all the people that make these shows and tours happen because you'll always see the award shows for the main guy on stage, but you'll never see um, the people behind the scenes. So it's just really cool to see that side of the industry. Well said, Mike. And from what I hear, they throw one heck of a party. Yeah, it's a lot of fun, too. It is fun. <laughs> Great people. So that concludes our episode all about Bob C. And we want to thank you guys for listening once again. Unfortunately, um, we will be moving on with this podcast without Elizabeth. Um, she's moving on to bigger and better things. and Not better, but... <laughs> we're going to miss you. Yeah, we're going to miss her a lot. She's helped this podcast grow. Um, it was basically her idea to start it. And um, it won't be the same, but hopefully it will still be okay and you guys will still listen <laughs> yeah i've enjoyed working with you guys and i'm gonna miss our roundtable discussions and all the laughing and all the craziness that ensued making this podcast it'll be hard to continue without you because you were really the uh inspiration for this program starting uh if it wasn't for you taking the head and lead on this i don't think i would have been involved so it really is a, a sad moment for us but we will continue because that's what show business does so thanks everyone for listening for the past year and a half two years um, we're excited to keep going and we hope that you stick around with us. Thanks, Elizabeth. <gasps> Bye forever. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>